Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I am a great big fanboy of Padma Lakshmi. To most of her fans, she's a host of Top Chef the long-running and very popular reality cooking show. To me, she's the creator and host of Taste the Nation, which recently dropped its second season on Hulu. She states the show's mission in the opening credits when she introduces herself. I came to America when I was four. I'm an immigrant, and I'm not alone. And she poses a slyly provocative question. What exactly is American food? And what makes us American? This is not only a food show. Come with me as we taste the nation. Quite frankly, Padma Lakshmi seems to have a mission with this show that's not too different from the one I've got for Notes from America. And I've long wanted to talk to her about this. I finally got the chance to do this recently, and our conversation maybe got off to a little awkward start when I overshared just a little. So I have to start off with a couple of confessions. Um, Okay. One, in my household, uh, you have quite an intimate presence. Um, (laughs) Yeah. The thing that my boyfriend and I do together is sit and hang out with you and taste nation. But I have to tell you, I have never seen an episode of Top Chef. Really? Does that surprise you? you Have you ever heard someone who's like... Totally obsessed with your work, but entirely through Taste the Nation. Yes, actually, I have. Um, I find people either are rabid fans of Top Chef or never heard of it or haven't watched it. And it's fine, you know, like Top Chef and Taste the Nation are such different ends of the spectrum that I'm lucky that I have both of them so that hopefully I'm appealing to whoever likes both those shows. But um, I'm just happy you're, you're watching. I appreciate it. Thank you for being gracious about that. It's just that I think what got me so interested in Taste the Nation is it's so like low-key subversive. And I've heard you say that you had red states in mind when you developed it to some degree, like people who don't see the value of immigrants. And I believe you when you say that, of course, but that is not at all how I processed it from episode one. I was like, this is such a classic example of like FUBU, like for us, by us of the second generation immigrant experience. I mean, what am I missing? You're not missing anything. I mean, I think... Thank you for saying it is low-key subversive because that means I've achieved my goal. My show is a definite offshoot of my advocacy work with immigration rights for the ACLU. I've been doing that now for seven years. And about, you know, four years ago, I started thinking about how to uh, include some of the things that I have learned from 
that experience into my creative work. And that's how Taste the Nation was born. And of course, it's for us, by us, but it's also looking at these communities, how we um, as brown and black people have always seen Euro-Americans or white people's stories treated. Like, Mm. you know, it's rare that our communities get that kind of high-caliber, A-list attention. And I wanted to do that because it's sort of like, if you light anybody right, you can make them pretty attractive. Well, (laughs) if you pay attention and you really listen, you can make any story interesting. I believe that everybody has an interesting story to tell. You just have to wait for it, listen, and hopefully highlight it in its truest and best light. And that's what we're trying to do. And Taste the Nation is a way for me to show the audience what I believe and kind of prove it. It allows me to be very political on a very human level without sort of saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And I just want to say, here's why I believe what I believe. And I try to do it through uh, the stories of these people who we meet. And I think all of those stories are deeply interesting. I am deeply interested in all of these stories. And, And so I feel like it's my job to make sure that everybody else finds them as interesting as possible, especially people who are not interested in sharing this country with new or recent arrivals, who are not interested in allowing anybody else to come in after they have. And sort of their inclination is to close the door behind them. And I'm my thesis is that immigration in this country, more than any other country in the world, is a vital catalyst and always has been for the continued evolution and betterment of our culture and and our our nation. Why is food such a great metaphor for the American experience? That's the whole concept of this show, um, that food's the metaphor. Why? Because food is so intrinsic to our survival. Every creature on the planet eats, every day consumes. As human beings, We do it to also symbolize and ritualize a lot of milestones in our life. And so there's a lot of emotional memory attached to food, just even biologically, because where uh, the olfactory sense is, which is most of taste, smell, um, it's located in the amygdala in the brain. And where emotional memory is located is also very close in physical proximity in the amygdala. And so that's why you can taste something and immediately be transported back to your grandma's house or, you know, the sixth grade cookie drive or whatever the heck it is, you know, and that that bite of food, I mean, I'm not the only one to say this, you know, Proust is very eloquent about it when he's talking about the Madeleine that he bites into that transports him back. Um, and, and so I think food is attached to so much that is important for our survival and our flourishing as human beings that it, it is a great way to break the ice with people. It's Notes from America. We'll be right back. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. 
In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Part of what happens in the series for me um, is you're used to, or I'm used to, uh, food shows, travel shows, saying, oh, let's go to this exotic other land. You know, and the invitation is presumably for white people to go to that land. And it's almost like America is the exotic other land for me and watching it, you know, and it's like, um, we I'm putting my we, even though I'm not a second generation immigrant, but I feel like black people uh, are part of the we in this show. Um, like Definitely. we are the objective starting point. You, I mean, we are, you are. I mean, for me, it was really important to not only highlight immigrant stories, but also highlight indigenous stories and the stories of enslaved people who came here through different routes. Um, in this season, we do an episode on Nigerian Americans. Yeah. And I wanted to take the opportunity, not just to let everyone know about this vibrant Nigerian American community in Houston, but also use them as a way to talk about blackness in America and how blackness is not a monolith. And, you know, it's a very touchy subject, as you can imagine, especially as a non-African American. And I don't know what it's like to walk in the shoes of an African American person. I don't. And I will never really know what that's like. But I certainly know what it's like to stand next to them while they're going through it. I certainly know what it is to love them, to hold their hand and bear witness to that. And so I wanted to talk about it. And it was really a delicate topic. And, you know, one of my producers uh, has been with me since day one, and she's Nigerian-American. And I said, Nosa, her name is Nosa Garrick. I said, I, I want you to do this episode with me. And she said, oh, no, I am not doing that episode. I said, why? You're Nigerian-American. This should be so personal for you. She said, I don't want those aunties coming for me. <laughs> and I said, well, do you want them coming for me? For me? Because you're going to let me do it. Yeah, you're, you're going to let me hang, you know, and do it by myself. I said, I don't want to get this wrong. And... I think you will feel hugely satisfied at the end of it. And, you know, it's your community. And and she begrudgingly worked on it with me. And I think she's very happy that she did. And I'm certainly very happy that she did. You know, we have some beautiful stories. This wonderful gospel singer who sings for a few bars on the show. A beautiful Nigerian song, but also said to me, I didn't know I was black until I got to America. I just thought I was Nigerian. And, you know, she worries for her children, you know, and that's why Nigerian Americans really cling in a special different way than I feel other immigrants cling to their culture. And I think it can be used as a protection because they don't come here with all of the baggage of Jim Crow and enslavement and 
everything that comes with being African-American in this country. But that heritage is hoisted upon their shoulders the minute that they enter this country and set up life here. So so we tackle this subject. And so, you know, in the first season, we have the Gullah Geechee episode. I learned right. so much myself. It's a beautiful episode. Thank you. I'm very proud of both those episodes. And even the indigenous episodes, you know, I made a commitment to try and do one each season. And we have um, this year we're in Appalachia and we learn what a boundary is. Let me ask you about that, because that was su- that episode. I feel like there's so much in it that illustrates what I find subversive in a positive way about the show. So it opens with you line dancing, um, or learning to <laughs> learning to line dance. I'm flat footing, <laughs> and I've never felt so left footed in front of white people. Step, like a marching. But it was fun. I mean, that's what I mean. I chop wood in that episode. Yeah. I learned to play banjo. Not that I can play a tune or anything, but you know, I'd never held that instrument in my hands. And yes, I mean, Appalachia was the first time that we broke format and, you know, did three different communities because we felt very strongly that you only get one side of Appalachia. And it is that sort of, you know, hillbilly, redneck, white, all these labels. That is the story that always comes out of there, even when it's done with love. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are a lot of black people in Appalachia. And Appalachia is a huge region. And then, of course, there are lots of indigenous people and the Cherokee are there. And they live on this thing called the boundary. We are not a reservation. You're not a reservation. We are not. We are a boundary. And tell me what a boundary is. We had to buy back all our land that we have now. From the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. Now. And they own their land and they're not, you know, governed by the same parameters or laws that reservations are. And I should have learned about that, you know, in school. I'm a product of the American public school system. And I never, ever learned about any of that. And that's wrong. And that kind of history, over and over again in the episodes, we we learn history. And what's cool, too, is we learn it, you know, in that example, you learned it from the women you were cooking with in that moment, not from some historian in academia. And I feel like that happens a lot. Um, And is that intentional that we learn all of this history? It's very intentional. So I do a lot of research. My producing partner, David Smith, and I, we decide uh, what communities we're interested in. We're trying to also canvas all of America. It's not always easy. You know, there's budgetary constraints and a whole lot of other issues. But we try to give each episode a thesis that's independent and and deeper than just, here's a Chinese-American community, you know, Mm -hmm. here's a Peruvian community, right? And so we do look at a lot of academic writing and a lot of scholarly papers when we start. There was this beautiful book about the DNA, about, you know, in Arizona, about the um, Navajo and Apache. But the writer of that book was... um, a white professor, and it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. You know, it gave me such a thorough understanding of that culture and its history, but I wanted them to speak for themselves. And so I think that for so many of us, especially Native American peoples, um, other people have told our story and have been, quote unquote, the authority of our narrative. And so it was very important to me to hear from people in the community. Um, Because I think, you know, 
If I had to go back to college, I would probably, I majored in theater and American literature, but I would probably major in history because I love history. But it was not as interesting to me when I was actually in school. And I think because it wasn't personal. And, you know, I only have about 30 minutes in each episode to cram down a lot of background knowledge into the audience's mind so that they understand the context of what we're talking about. And so I'm trying to make things like shipping law that affects Puerto (laughs) Rican um, food supply um, seem sexy, you know, and that's not always Well, seem emotional. I mean, that's what I get. It's less that it's sexy, but it's emotional. Like the emotion is attached to the history in the show that is, that allows me to take it in. Um, And I think part of that is that you you're such your full self when you show up um and that's part of what like hooked me i mean it is all very emotional for me you know i um am someone who i think is intelligent i am intelligent but i lead with my heart more than my head and one of the reasons i started working with the aclu in 2016 is because of all the negative and inaccurate rhetoric that was being spewed around the media in that campaign. And so as an immigrant myself, it was very personal to me. You know, Taste the Nation is not a journalistic show. It's not. It is one person's point of view, mine. And I try to be as balanced as I can because I also think that gives the show and me more credibility. But you're seeing things because I want you to see them, because I feel you ha- the audience hasn't seen enough of that. Taste the Nation debuted during the early months of the COVID pandemic. And I told Pama that, for me at least, I think that's part of why I connected so quickly and deeply to her project here. I needed something about this country to make me smile. I was doing my work with the ACLU, and I was thinking about this show because I already felt that this country was much more polarized than when I grew up in the 70s and 80s and 90s. You know, I just didn't remember it being this, this separated. And so it was out of a desire to bring people together, to walk across the street and be curious about your neighbor, you know, who maybe has a funny accent or all kind of funky smells are coming out of that kitchen (laughs) that, you know, waft across the street and you don't know about them and you're scared to go up to them and you think they're weird and they think you're weird and everyone's keeping to themselves. It was meant to bridge that divide. And then, of course, COVID hit and we were so much more alienated from each other. And so there was a lot of stuff that came out around that time that was really weird yep. and a lot of things that were cynical. Yep. And, you know, I, I have gone through a lot of serious stuff in my life, in my earlier life, but I remain hopeful and I am at my core an optimistic person. And I wanted to do a show that was that straddled both a hopefulness and a very clear-eyed honesty about things in our culture. Padma Lakshmi's Taste the Nation is in its second season on Hulu. 
Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. If you heard anything you want to talk back to us about, just go to our website, notesfromamerica.org. Look for the little green button and you can leave us a voicemail right there. Mixing and theme music by Jared Paul. Reporting, producing, and editing by Karen Froman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Talk to you next time. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.